Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. Uh, Apologize for the lateness uh, with which we are dropping this podcast. Unavoidable scheduling calamities made it necessary for us to do it several hours later than we ordinarily do. Uh, So for those of you who uh, wait and uh, wait in in agony for us to uh, drop the podcast in the morning, uh, we apologize uh, deeply, uh, I speak, of course, not only for myself, but for my colleagues, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Noah, uh, I gather you've been watching and uh, paying attention to and trying to follow the uh, testimony of Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken who uh, is now talking to congressional oversight committees about our policy in Afghanistan, among other things. Can you give us a progress report on on Blinken and the hot seat? Uh, if he gets a letter grade, I guess it's like a C minus. Um, <clears throat> there's, I mean, it's sort of hard to follow all the dissembling that's going on from this guy because uh, it's been quite a bit. He was treated to a uh, a real you know sort of perfunctory apple polishing treatment from democratic members of the house when he testified yesterday he got a, a far more hostile reception today from the senate um, um with the exception of you know some perfunctory in- indignation from democrats who are saying you know there's a lot of blame to go around here let's just let's not you know let's apportion blame to ever all of us we all sort of own this failure right um but anthony blinken has said a couple of things yesterday that I thought deserved uh, more scrutiny and more attention than they received. The first, under questioning from Representative Brad Sherman of California, who leadingly uh, sort of guided uh, Tony Blinken towards blaming the Trump administration for the spectacular success that they've overseen over the course of the last couple of days, sort of a bizarre dichotomy there where you have to find somebody to blame for the success that they're crowing over. Um, but so, you know, what kind of plan did you inherit? And Anthony Blinken said, you know, we, we, we inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan, uh, meaning that they didn't have a plan for withdrawal. That is neither credible nor exculpatory. Um, first, they did inherit a plan. It wasn't a very good one. Um, the Trump administration barreled towards withdrawal with, a, with alacrity that suggests they would have continued to execute something along the lines of what Joe Biden executed if they had been reelected. Um, so they don't deserve any exculpation either. But the Biden administration renegotiated that deadline, uh, had its own plan set in place. According to reporting from the Wall Street Journal, it was in conflict. The Pentagon and the State Department were in conflict over it. Um, They stuck to it, even as it became blindingly obvious that it would lead to a historic disaster. Only in the final weeks of July did they start to reconsider uh, some of the aspects of this plan. disastrously, the decision to pull uh, air intelligence and logistical support from the Afghan National Army. By then, it was far too late. Um, and Joe, uh, but perhaps the, the worst possible aspect of what's coming out of uh, Secretary of State Blinken in testimony before Congress is in an opening statement that he repeated both before the House of Representatives, members of the House of Representatives, and members of the Senate today. Um, which is the, his third point, which is that they're focused on counterterrorism in Central Asia. And to the, that effect, the Taliban have become our invaluable partners. Quote, the Taliban has committed to prevent terrorist groups from using Afghanistan as a base for external operations that could threaten the United States or our allies, including Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K. 
That is in conflict, not just with the former intelligence officials who served under Democratic presidents like Joe Biden or uh, Barack Obama. It is in conflict with the national security apparatus of this administration. Um, as we understand it uh, today, including members of the administration, including Defense Intelligence Agency Director Scott Brayer and Deputy CIA Director David Cohen, both assessed that Al-Qaeda could reconstitute itself and execute or uh, represent a credible threat to the United States homeland within 12 to 24 months. Breyer said that was a conservative estimate. That dovetails with what we've heard from Mark Milley, who also told members of the Senate. Mark Milley being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Chiefs, who also said that Al-Qaeda could present a threat to the homeland. Their timetable has accelerated, and they're watching that very closely. And outside the administration, former CIA directors like Mike Morrell and Leon Panetta uh, both stress that uh, al-Qaeda will reconstitute itself, that the Taliban is supportive of those operations, and if the United States does not execute intelligence, covert, and overt military action to prevent it, there will be a repeat of attacks in the United States homeland directed from the Taliban. And one final point, because I know I'm analogizing, but this administration has leaned into this idea, um, both on and off the record, when they're talking to reporters, that the locus of transnational terrorism has moved outside of Afghanistan. It is not there anymore. And Joe Biden has said this too, it's not there anymore. So it's important for us to move on to where it is. The reason why it wasn't there anymore is because we were seeing to that. We were actively preventing that from happening. We are no longer. And as a result, they're talking about, and members of the administration testified to this effect today, that they're talking about within the aspiring jihadist community, of reconstituting Afghanistan as a base of operations to export terrorism without I mean, receiving that mission, that will happen. You've and that's made, why we're in the first place. You've made the most uh, in, most uh, plainly logical point that any four-year-old could understand. Here, here would be the point. Hi, I'm 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 standing in the village where there was a hole in the dike and uh the, the 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 water hasn't flooded the village for 20 years because the hole in the dike was plugged up so the water that had to flood other flooded other places and went elsewhere so now i'm just going to take the plug out of the dike because there's no water on this side of the dike and so it's fine um yeah so the kid in the story of the guy, kid with the thumb in the dike is like i can't take my thumb out of the dike because the water will rush in again and the foolish adults are like no no it's fine look it's dry over here that is the simplicity of the situation that we find ourselves in, which is Afghanistan is no longer, is not the locus of terror because uh, it, it, it isn't permitted to be the locus of terror. Then we leave. Why wouldn't it become the locus of terror again? It's being run by a regime that supports and believes in terror. It would be weird if it didn't become a locus of terror. What has changed in the Taliban's ideology and thought process that would lead one to believe that they have moved beyond the idea that terrorizing the West is a good thing? Absent 
the finger in the dike, the floodplain will flood again. And <clears throat> the idea that the Taliban is our ally and not, in fact, Al-Qaeda's ally is just an absolute reversal of the truth. Uh, we should say we have, we're going to have a fantastic piece coming up in the magazine by Jonathan Shanzer. Yeah, making... you'll be able to read it on Monday, I think, maybe Friday. It's hard to tell, but we will have most of a fantastic issue that is focused on the requiem for a superpower, as we're calling it. Uh, and Shanzer, may, the piece that Abe's talking about is about this deranged, factitious claim that somehow the Taliban and ISIS-K are on different sides. Right, and, and or that that the Taliban and and uh, Al Qaeda are on different sides. Is, is Did another... I say? I'm sorry. Said yeah, you said thing. yeah, and Al Qaeda. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and just yeah, without sorry. giving too much away from the piece, he cites chapter and verse. They've been working together this whole time. This isn't like an this isn't like a relic from a from an age that has long since passed. They've been working together this whole time. Um, but another point just came to me when when Noah was speaking. Let's say it's true. Let's pretend that this is totally true, that Joe Biden has done this incredible thing and gotten the Taliban to be pro-U.S. anti-Islamist terror, right? Um, I thought that American presidents did were, were, do, were horrible when they aligned themselves with, uh, with, with bad organizations. I thought, I thought, when I thought it wasn't, wasn't it like, a, didn't the entire liberal world uh, attack Donald Trump because of, because of his relations with MBS, right? Uh, and, and Saudi Arabia weren't, weren't, we're, we're not even supposed to be close to Saudi Arabia, but it's great that we're partnering with the Taliban. Well, and even if you believe that the administration is putting its best effort and and uh, focusing with laser-like uh, precision and efficiency on rooting out terror that might reemerge in Afghanistan. The early signs are not positive that they know what they're doing. So one of the questions that Blinken was asked by Senator Rand Paul was, did we kill an ISIS-K operative or an aid worker when we droned a car full of people? And he couldn't answer the question. In fact, I believe what he said in response was, well, we don't know because we're reviewing it. And, you know, Rand Paul is, is definitely a, a showman, but he responded, I think, appropriately and said, you think you kind of know before you off somebody with a predator drone. And well, he's no, right. No, not. Well, sort of to, to a certain extent. He's right. But only insofar as you have ac accurate, reliable, actionable intelligence from sources on the ground. And that's one of the reasons why this administration was betraying the lie that they had uh, effective, quote, over the horizon capabilities, exactly. which is itself an obnoxious phrase that didn't exist three months ago. And we're just kind of inventing it now. And everybody's assumed that it's a real thing. Um, but we don't have that actionable intelligence and we don't have those capabilities because the administration was doing its best leaning into every Central Asian partner that they could to get us some local support. And you're talking to India, India, help us out. We're desperate for some kind of access to the resources and to the intelligence that we had a month ago. Can we talk about the metaphor, the over the horizon metaphor for just 30 seconds? Okay. If you think it through, it's a Rube Goldberg machine. Uh, intelligence is about seeing things and being able to act on them. Now there are different ways of seeing things. You can he you can sort of see them through hearing in some odd way, right? Because you have bugs. You can see them from satellites. 
You can see them from human intelligence. You can see them in this way and the other way, right? By definition, you can't see something that is over the horizon. It's past your sight line. Claiming that there is such a thing as over the horizon intelligence is itself an exposure of a weakness. The last thing you want to do is rely on worse intelligence than you might be able to get otherwise by having eyes on the things that you are trying to find out about. You are so right. It is it is this administration's leading from behind. <laughs> it, is, it is it is it is an yeah. oxymoron right. in a sense. And dro I mean look, we we published a remarkable article 10 years ago, maybe even a longer by Kenneth Anderson called The Case for Drones. And there is a strong case for drones, and the case for drones is they are incredibly specific. It is incredibly humane if you need to target something to extirpate it, to do it in the most targeted way fashion. It's not people like look at it and say it's horrifying that, you know, there's unmanned thing is going after someone, how scary. But that in fact, in the annals of warfare, there has never been, you know, a precision guided piece of weaponry that is aimed at something very specific, is, is, is everything that you have been working toward forever. Having said that, it violates the elementary principles of the rules of war that you do not know who you are hitting. You are supposed to know. That's why we've had we had all these jokes about how every time that there might have been a drone strike, there were 12 people sitting around a table, including lawyers, deciding about whether or not it was permissible or impermissible to do this thing. Um, that is a real thing, and it all has to do with the fact that this weaponry misused is a war crime. I mean, it, it is, a, it is a, the definition of a war crime not to have certainty and to do it anyway. You can, it is not a crime. You can make a terrible, horrible blunder and a mistake uh, if you hit the wrong thing because you got false intelligence, for example, or you were told the wrong thing. Maybe. But if you actually aren't reasonably sure what you're trying to do is avenge an event and all that, and it's sort of like it does have that slight feeling of, well, one Afghan in a car is just as bad as any other Afghan in a car. Or some guy told us it was that car, and you don't, and it, and your intelligence capabilities are so compromised, you probably shouldn't be using that tactic because it has a hundred percent success. You are going to kill that person in the car. You have to know beforehand that that's the guy because he's not. Um, you know, it's not a thing where he's killed as an as a as a as a as an innocent bystander or as ancillary damage. He is the target. Therefore, he has to be the one. And it's it's you know I, the last thing I want to do is claim that a war crime happened here. I really don't. And I don't think that anybody intended to do anything like that. But but that's that is the flip side of the drone strategy. Is you really have to have a hundred percent certainty of your target, because then you get into the. It's at that point that you start getting into the weeds about what happens if you're targeting him, but his children are around him, or what do you do if he's at a wedding party, or what do you do if he, he he's only exposed in a place where you can't protect everybody else, but not if he's the only guy in a car. I'm sorry. Like that is not okay. Anyway, uh, by the way, his children were um, around him, and and even yeah. if he was the right guy, and that 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 even right. that alone no, was that, the, right. was the kind of thing yeah. that used to get a lot more attention than it seems to now. 
Yeah, right. Seven children were killed in this strike yeah. to the sound of absolute yeah. crickets, and, and yeah. including people who did work for the United States. To what capacity, we don't know. But the BBC broke that before the Times right. broke it. So there's corroborating reports on that. <laughs> Briefly, before we move on, can I litigate it? While we're litigating rhetorical grievances, I have one yes. that I want to submit. <clears throat> ISIS-K makes no sense. ISIS-K is not a phrase that we should use, and I don't think we will be using it for another, uh, another month. Um, ISIS is an anglicized... Uh, uh, abbreviation for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Iraq and the Levant used to be ISIL. And the Obamans did so much work to to make us all adopt Daesh, and somehow they just stopped doing that. I don't know what happened there. Um, but the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria in Khorasan, which is the province that they're operating out of, doesn't make any sense. And these are not the same groups. These are very distinct groups. And they, the administration is trying to lean into the idea that intra-terrorist politics are somehow going to save us here as though they are not united by a common goal, which is fighting us. Somehow intra-terrorist politics sort of milked away. We talked about unity in the United States past 9-11 all, all day yesterday and, and during the weekend. They're united by a common objective. Uh, and that common objective is not 100% seen to yet. Um, we're not 100% out of that region, and our allies are not 100% out of that region, at which point that's when the power struggle begins. Right. Um, yeah, the notion they're trying to lean into this idea that we can get out of the way and let the civil war blow up. I mean, that's literally what they're talking about. We're hoping for bloody, yeah. merciless civil conflict to save us. That's their best case scenario. Right. Okay, Christine, I want to talk to you about a very bizarre story that came out uh, in Politico, in Politico's National Security Daily, uh, because this will give you a sense of what Antony Blinken is trying to play into and why, you know, what, what the administration and its apologists are clinging to, because the story is fascinating in its particulars. It's called Biden's Winning the Afghan Messaging by Alexander Ward and Quint Forgey. Okay. Biden administration's messaging on Afghanistan is working new polling seen exclusively by NATSEC Daily Shows, a boon to Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin as they head into congressional hearings. The CT Group, an international consulting firm, of which I've never heard, by the way, sent one-sentence arguments to people in the United States, Britain, and Australia, both in favor of and against Joe Biden's pullout decision. They found that pro-withdrawal lines drove more, drove more people to support leaving Afghanistan, whereas statements that backed remaining in the country weren't as convincing. Quote, our data shows that the Biden administration, the messaging it's doing, is reaching an audience and is making an impact, said Price Floyd, <clears throat> Director of C Campaigns and Communications at CT's Washington, D.C. office. This is hogwash. <clears throat> they go out and they test a message that says the U.S. has been in Afghanistan for 20 years. That is far too long. Regardless of the impact, we should leave now. And they find that people say that they like that message. Biden is saying something like that. Therefore, Biden's message is working with the American people. It is having an impact. And it's what having an is? impact. Now, so I want to just cite one very simple thing to you, okay? When, in relation to Biden's message on Afghanistan is working, okay? The day, the day that the streams crossed on the Real Clear Politics Daily Average, where his approval rating 
was out distanced by his disapproval rating was August 20th, 2021, in the middle of the Afghanistan pullout disaster. Okay? As of yesterday, this is the Real Clear Politics poll of polls. His disapprove is at 50%, 49.8, approve at 45%, 45.2. So he is now five points underwater. Now, I'm bringing this up not because I want to cite polls and talk about polls. Remember, it's Republicans who don't respond to polls, not Democrats. So what we have to assume when these numbers come out is that these are numbers reflecting disproportionately Democrats in independent opinion and not so much Republicans who basically don't like Biden whenever if they answer, but they're not going to be populating the poll. On June 29th, okay, this is a week before the notorious July 7th press conference where he said the Taliban will not take over Afghanistan. His poll number in this poll, in this poll of polls, was 53% to 43% disapprove. From June 29th to September 13th, Biden has gone from an from a 10-point positive margin to a 5-point negative margin. That is a shift of 15 points in polling. That is terrible. That is extremely bad and the notion that anybody can say that any message that he has been promulgating about afghanistan is working is crazy wishful thinking and here it is in the publication that just sold for a billion dollars but that's but see that's it's interesting to me that first of all this obscure company that no one's heard of it's not one of the major polling firms that we're used to citing um saying something had an impact look a nice warm hug can have an impact on someone but so can a massive meteor hitting the earth and causing the elimination of the dinosaur so the impact is not useful here but i do think this this continues to refuse to draw the distinction that a lot of Americans were very capable and are very capable of making, which is between saying we want to stay in Afghanistan forever indefinitely and, you know, and, and, and we want to end the war and the means really don't matter to us. The means here are everything. The way that we chose to get out of Afghanistan matters to people because of the death and the havoc it has caused. And we've said this many times, but it's worth bringing up again, unless you introduce the issue of future terrorist strikes both on uh, in in our interests overseas and at the in the homeland, you really cannot call any answer to that kind of poll question honest because that has to be taken into consideration. It's not even a poll, right? It's it's, it's not very even strange. a poll. It's a it's a message testing mechanism. Yeah, people do this all the time. They say things like, "Wouldn't it be great if you paid ten percent less in taxes?" And then they say, "You see, the American people." support a giant tax cut or or do you think the rich should pay more in taxes yes so then that means that blah 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 that's not how this works like people nor is nor is this anything that should have ever been reported there's no that's the point they're desperate yes there, exactly. we don't have the wording of this detail we don't know what the focus group was if it was a focus group if this was online if this was self-selected no editor should have ever allowed this to run i don't know how this publication did I certainly don't know how it got valued at a billion dollars, but this is not well, reporting. But poor Biden, well, just messaging. 
the he should have put it on. He should have put it on the back of AOC's Met Gala dress, and then it actually would have <laughs> yes. had an impact. Well, well I mean, the piece it, ends the with this line quote: "The survey, the start, Let me just, guys. Let me just. The survey results all track with polling conducted since the withdrawal, showing broad support for the war's end, which helps explain why Biden's rhetoric is working. Okay, so. You ask people, should we pull out of Afghanistan? They say yes. You then ask people, do they approve or disapprove of Joe Biden's presidency? And and two months ago, he had a 10% margin of support on that question. And now he has five points underwater. Saying that his strategy is working is literally to serve as a propagandist arm of the Biden administration, which isn't helpful to the Biden administration, by the way, because they walk around going, this is really popular. That's stupid of them. That is not going to help them to fantasize that things that they are doing that are incredibly unpopular are in fact popular. In theory, everyone is for the end of the war, apparently. In practice, as Christine just noted, uh-uh, no. It's a mess. They don't like a mess. Abe, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I really apologize. No, it's fine. It, it's, just, it's, it's essentially the story is uh, breaking news. People think peace is nice. But we don't even know that they think it's nice. I mean, yeah, if you say to people, in, in all, things being, yeah, right. yeah, all things being equal, should we be at war in Afghanistan or should we not? They're right. going to say no. Let's pull right. out. Right. So would I. You know, right. all all things being equal in a world that I wish I lived in, I wish that we hadn't been in Afghanistan ever. Okay, but what I think what what you're getting at and, and to Noah's earlier point that I think is really important here, there's something, there's some, uh, th there's a real whiff of desperation to this kind of thing being reported about the Biden administration in the same way that the, there was a kind of flailing desperation to Blinken's performance in front of Congress. And I think it's because they still cannot answer basic factual questions about what's going on there for Americans and green card holders. They don't even know how many people are there. They keep giving the same number. It keeps fluctuating. There's no plans to get them out that we know of or that they'll talk about. And even again, even if we want to assume, as we talked about last week, that they are behind the scenes doing that, there's no clear answer. Meanwhile, what's being reported is that we're giving tens of millions of dollars to the Taliban as so-called humanitarian aid, Well, that, which to many of us looks a lot like a bribe or a ransom, yeah. can you, is it? Can you, can you go into that a little bit? Because um, that's something that came over sort of as a kind of weird press release. Right. How much? USAID. I think it's, it's 65 it million. million. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just in humanitarian aid. It, it was sort of vaguely worded but you know the kind of the kind of message that is is generally issued when when USAID gives money to a country but in this context because of the uh, continued uh, lack of information about Americans and and green card holders who are still there and say nothing of our SIV holders it it sounds odd and there should probably have been more detail about how this aid was going to be distributed and to whom you know i, I have to be say distributed to the to the Taliban government and who's doing the distributing who who heads USAID anybody know who? Um, Samantha Power. Oh, oh I, you know, that's a problem from hell right there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, of all the people to administer yeah. what, what... All what the bureaucracies in all be. the world. Yeah. A bribe yeah. for this... Uh, she for is... This she is... The, disaster she, is she is the spiritual Walter Durante of our time. I mean, in reverse. She uh, wins a Pulitzer Prize talking about the horrors of our refusal to intervene in humanitarian 
efforts and then stands by as we violate the red the red line in Syria or as we you know refuse to enforce the red line in Syria and is now sending money to the Taliban. So congratulations. I hope she enjoys her time at the pearly gates. <laughs> I really do cuz this is not a positive history no. of someone's reputation being made and then turning around and essentially being forced to be the frontline official who violates every moral maxim that she herself laid out in the work that made her famous. Well, like many an intellectual, yes. well, like many an intellectual before her, she was she was uh, used uh, willingly and enthusiastically by an administration that wanted to sort of virtue wash some of its uh, foreign policy decision making that that you know is clearly not virtuous. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to say that. Um, while, of course, I agree that the story on Biden's messaging is, as John said perfectly, hogwash, there is, uh, I think, a depressing reality that I, I'm starting to sense, which is that Americans are losing interest in, in Afghanistan uh, very quickly. We're not seeing major, a flood of major stories about the fact that there are still Americans and Afghans uh, trapped in the country, the story about the most likely mistaken drone strike is not as big a deal as it should be. Um, so it's not because messaging is working. I think it's having has to do with other factors. Um, but and it but it's extraordinarily depressing. I, I I think your 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 depression is premature. Good. I think it is very hard for anybody to get any information out and about of what's going on. The Taliban are. You know, clamping down, number one, number, you know, it's not a safe place to report from. I don't think people really know what's going on. And my presumption is that the um, resistance networks that are going to funnel information out and get it out have not yet been able to establish themselves well. Um, and it may well be that the Taliban haven't yet shown their hands uh, in terms of their long, you know, their, 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 uh, long-driven plans uh, because they're still constituting their government and setting up their authority and trying to get control over their disparate, you know, guerrilla fighters and all of that, and that they will make their moves when they make their moves. And there will probably be horrifyingly uh, information that starts to penetrate. I mean, I, I just repeat what I've, I said a couple, you know, weeks ago, which is that we had no idea what was going on in Vietnam for about three years after the after our withdrawal from Vietnam, and then a million and a half people started fled on boats, and told us about the reeducation camps, and told us about the gulag, and told us about the tortures, and told us about what you know about what had happened when we there took our finger out of the dike. And, you know, uh, we are, we have much, we have in much the same way that we had there, you had millions of South Vietnamese who had been collaborators with the United States who were, you know, essentially forced into prisonerhood by the fact that they had not taken up arms against the United States and against the South Vietnamese regime. 
who knows what these people are going to do but, but even if we have become so complicit and so parochial that we don't even care about what happens to american citizens in this pit that we've left them to say nothing of the afghans to whom we have a solemn duty and responsibility that we've sacrificed even if we don't care about that by the administration's own admission they have a 12-month respite before they've got a major national security crisis on their hands emanating from afghanistan that according to uh mark morrell uh, will require military intervention to uh, to disrupt. So, yeah, I mean, the notion here that this is this is over or that this isn't going to be a, a years long headache for this administration is betrayed by the administration itself. Uh, guys, so let's talk about incognito mode. Okay, you know, incognito mode. You go into it on your Google browser to hide where it is that you're going on the internet. Well, you know, incognito mode is a Google product like the Chrome browser itself. How has Google made its fortune? It's made its fortune tracking your movements online and selling your data to other companies. There's a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. And Google's defense is that incognito mode, quote, does not mean invisible, unquote. Look, how do you make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN like I do because it turns out even in incognito mode, your online activity gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. What are those data points? Your IP address. Data harvesters use it to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit ExpressVPN slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash commentary. Go to ExpressVPN.com slash commentary to learn more. Okay, I want to switch gears and talk about a weird story that I think is nonetheless unbelievably instructive about our present moment. Um, and it's about Barnard College. Barnard College is maybe, I think, the last remaining of the sister colleges in the Ivy Leagues. You may remember there was Radcliffe, which was, which was the sister college of Harvard. Uh, Barnard is the sister college of Columbia. It sits across Broadway, on in Morningside Heights uh, in New York City, uh, has a small, a jewel of a campus, and it is a it is a female only school, um, and it is apparently the most Jewish of all the non of all the secular colleges in the United States, uh, except maybe for the University of Florida. I think thirty three or thirty four percent of its students are. Jewish, so they're female Jews, and uh, as our friend, our old friend, old colleague, uh, Daniela Greenbaum-Davis detailed at The Federalist, I I need to find this story, and as The Forward has reported, uh, last week, uh, right before the beginning of the Rosh Hashanah holiday, days of awe, uh, the most important days of the Jewish calendar, um, an email arrived in Jewish students' inboxes. No, Jewish students, okay? Quote, 
we recognize that how you have practiced religious traditions in the past may not align with the use of technology during the High Holy Days or the Sabbath. Uh, let me just explain that on religious holidays and on the Sabbath in Judaism, you are to do no work. That is the term, which means you are to use no electricity of any kind. Uh, if you are an observant Jew, you do not use electricity. Okay? So, these are the religious traditions in the past, according to this email. They're not in the past. They are in the present. Okay. This year... It is paramount for the community's health and safety, as well as your own, that you abide by the Barnard Pledge and follow the college's policies and procedures, wrote Cynthia Yang, head of Barnard's pandemic response team. The campus communities that intersect at Barnard and Columbia cannot wait until Wednesday night for students to report symptoms or respond to a notification of a positive test. The chain of transmission can only be shortened when individuals act responsibly and quickly. Now, 90 minutes later, this email was rescinded and an apology was delivered by Yang announcing a new system that would allow observant students to alert bar and staff if they had symptoms of the coronavirus without using technology. Basically, they were going to give them stickers. You're also not allowed to write, by the way. You're not allowed to write or tear paper. So they were going to be given stickers they could put on their doors uh, to indicate uh, that, you know, there was a firstborn child there so that their children could be killed. Okay, not that. But they were to put stickers on their doors and indicate that, you know, they maybe they should be in quarantine. Okay? Uh, she apologized and came up with the sticker system. And then she said, I want to make clear that Barnard is here to support students. However they choose to worship the High Holy Days or Sabbath, said Yang. Um, and uh, basically, uh, Barnard didn't respond to the forward's requests for further comment. Um, so this is not the University of Idaho, where there are probably three Jewish students. This is a school that is 30 percent Jewish and is 33% Jewish, moreover, because it happens to be viewed as a, as a welcoming place for Orthodox Jewish female students who do not otherwise wish to attend Jewish institutions. That, I, I mean, I've known many uh, young women who have gone to Barnard for precisely this reason, Barnard allies, and it's not just Orthodox Jewish girls. Barnard has a program, has had for decades a program in which they run in, in partnership with the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is conservative Judaism. That is the official organizing body of conservative Judaism, which also, by the way, hews to the principle that you were not to use electricity on the Sabbath or on High Holy Days. Students are do joint programs, joint, I, I've known several. They get degrees, MA, BA and MA from Barnard and the, and the Jewish Theological Seminary together. This year, we just can't wait. So your multi-millennia policy 
has really got to be scrapped. Now, there is a tradition in Judaism among doctors and among that in for life-saving purposes, you are allowed to violate these rules. Doctors, for example, can, if they have to drive somewhere on the Sabbath because they have they're engaged in life-saving procedures, they can do so. They can use electricity on the Sabbath if they need to. If you are pregnant, you do not have to fast on Yom Kippur. If you are taking medications that make it impot that you cannot digest, or you know that are like you you can drink a sip of water to do that. There are various exceptions, uh, but they are for life-saving reasons, not because Cynthia Yang, director of pandemic response, is a hysteric who says we can't wait until Wednesday probably because you stinking Jews we know what you did last year and had went to all those went to all those things in borough park and made everybody sick this is at a philo nominally philo semitic institution i am now done with my monologue please respond well it's it's a perfect example of a of a shift in um our culture that's should be worrisome not just to uh Orthodox or conservative Jews, but to anyone who who practices an observation of religious ritual, because the idea is that that scientific or technocratic expertise that's linked to anything where public health can be invoked takes precedence over everything else. And, you know, this is actually going to be part of the vaccine mandate stuff that these debates are going to be ongoing in our culture in the years to come, um, because a lot of things are now considered a threat to public health that aren't that wouldn't have been in previous generations. But the contempt for for Jewish students in particular, as we know, unfortunately, given the the rise of the BDS movement on campus, the rise of anti-Semitism more generally in our culture, and the absolute lack of attention to that or willingness to confront that with the same vigor and energy and condemnation that other expressions of bigotry and hate have received in the mainstream culture. I think this is an example of this. Do you think for a moment that if this was a campus with 30%, I don't know, Muslim students, that this would have been an issue? No. I don't think so. I just think that that the the sort of you know Ms. Yangs of the world would never have would never have used her bureaucratic power to try to exercise that sort of uh, restriction on on religious students of another faith. If it were a vaccine mandate, by the way, it would be a even that would be a slightly different story, because the idea would be you need to get a shot to be on this. I believe, by the way, Barnard has a vaccine mandate. So let us now be clear that everybody who is in those buildings is already vaccinated. So let's just lay that out, shall we, about their MedBot program that they have to respond to every day about whether or not they have symptoms. I do this for my kid in high school. Here's what it says. What's your temperature? Do you have these symptoms? Do you cough? Do you have a runny nose? Do you have a headache? Have you lost your sense of smell? You check out, no. Then it's like, do you know anyone who's had COVID? You say no. You say this, that, no. And then it's like, Yay, you're green, you can go. This is not a serious examination of whether somebody is or is not sick. It is a pro forma ritual now, if you have to do this every day. Nobody answers any question in the affirmative. The minute you answer any question in the affirmative, the green goes to red, and then you're quarantined for 14 days. So obviously no one is going to answer that unless they're really sick, in which case... 
they probably don't need to use the medbot thing. They can just call, you know, Ms. Yang and say, uh-oh, I've got coronavirus. Let me tell you everybody I saw in the last 48 hours, okay? So what she wants is to have her database of fake green, yes, I don't have coronavirus, nice and 100% clear for her data set among the fully vaccinated population of Barnard College. I know that you have these weird rituals that you've had in the past, but right now I need you to use your app. To observe our own weird ritual. (laughs) Use your app or you're out of here, Jew. So what do you think? <clears throat> what do you think happened in between the 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 first letter and the and the and the walk back? Well, I hope we're going to find out because what's interesting, of course, is it really doesn't take much for someone to look at this thing and say, "Are you crazy?" Right? Or there's some, you know, let me just put it this way: not to be, you know, overly um, cynical. But uh, there's a student whose father is worth $250 million, and she's Sabbath observant living in the barter dorm, and she gets something that says, you better use the app tonight, and she sends the email to her father who calls the university, who calls the president of Brand- of, uh, of Barnard and says, um, what was that question you asked me about giving money to your building? That I will now give to whatever school is your rival to drive you out of business? I mean, I, that's what I assume happened. I also assume somehow, but this is the question, did she do this on her own? Was there no clearance process by which a an official at Barnard gets her hand on the email list of Sabbath observant Barnard students and sends out an email with no further clearance from anybody? Where does she get her hands on this list? Why is that list readily available to somebody? What if some psychotic, you know, anti-Semite got their hands on that list and then decided that they wanted to go dorm room by dorm room and shoot the Jewish kids in the dorm rooms? This is not normal. That list exists in order to facilitate the ease and the ways in which people who have special need special accommodations can be reached en masse, not to say it is time for you to violate your religious principles for my database. So I hope we'll find out. Barnard is clearly scared out of its wits, and it should be. I mean, I don't... I don't know what the ramifications of this are going to be. Maybe the ramifications will be nothing, but it also speaks to the mindset on campus, which is religious practice is, it's adorable sometimes. You know, it's okay, I guess, if you're going to be that way. But, you know, not when I need you to fill out the form. I'm sorry, you got to fill out the form doesn't matter that the Torah was handed down at Sinai or anything. 
doesn't matter that these rules and regulations were promulgated over 2,000 years and have been interpreted as such for 2,000 years. I'm 47 years old and a bureaucrat here at Barnard, and I don't give a shit what you think or what you believe or what Western tradition is or what it means to be an actual liberal person who believes in the rights of others. But I don't, it, it, it doesn't even have to be that they don't care at all about them. It's that they think they know better about how to keep people safe. It's that the sort of safetyism implied in this that should override all of those things. At the same time that I, I look, these were the same issues with regard to some of the restrictions the state was trying to impose on, for example, Orthodox weddings, Orthodox, you know, prayer, all the, all the parts of religious faith that are by definition and need communal. And we talked about this throughout the pandemic and the, 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 the swiftness with which bureaucrats will dismiss that for some phase, although not for all, um, and for some people, they, they treat it as if it's a malleable identity politics issue rather than about a deeply held faith. And that's a real mistake. And it does lead them into situations where in many cases they rightfully get sued so that the people who need to practice their faith can do so. Uh, in other cases, as in, as in this one, they are publicly shamed as they should be and, and have to withdraw the, the rule. But it speaks to a real uh, inability to understand what religious faith and religious practice is. Look, the classic instance of dealing with the question of health and religious belief is, you know, it's sort of like a, a, a law school class in which you're presented with a theoretical case in which a Christian science, a Christian science couple has a baby, the baby develops meningitis and they want to just pray over the baby instead of doing something to cure the meningitis and the baby dies. Are they guilty of murder? Are they guilty of manslaughter? Are they guilty of ne negligent manslaughter? They believe that prayer is the proper way to deal with illness. How do we function in a society in which the establishment of religion shall not be denied according, you know, there'll be no establishment of a state religion and all that. What is that? That is a those that is the hard case, right? And we're always told hard cases make bad law, but that is the kind of Talmudic, if you'll excuse me, case that you have to deal with when you are dealing with the incredible collision of two fundamental rights, right? That is not what this is. And what it what it represents is the assertion that the app that says that you don't have COVID is more important than the belief structure that has undergirded the world's oldest surviving monotheistic religion, because I, Julia Yang, say so, and she does, she is not a controversialist. I, I mean, we've never heard of her before. We assume she's not a controversialist. She's doing this because this is what everybody she knows thinks. This is what everybody in her entire life that she's ever known has thought. Or if they didn't, and they were more religious than she, if she had a grandmother who was whatever, I don't even know. She's like, you know, there was, you know, they have that. You know, they're clinging to their guns and their religion, whatever it is. Okay, um, but if but if this was a policy that that was somehow viewed as detrimental by, say, I don't know, the trans community on campus. You better believe there would already have been many calls for her to be fired. That's yeah. that's the difference. Like the, the outrage machine, which springs into action when other groups are targeted for things that are that are viewed as hostile or or unfair or bigoted in any way, shape, or form, has not kicked in here, right? It's just 
I mean, not that it should. I'm not calling for people to be fired over mistakes they've made. But again, this is, I think, what's so frustrating. And I, uh, in, in when stories like this happen, people think, oh, it's just a mistake. Why are you making such a big deal? Well, we need to make a big deal about the contrast between how this would be handled if it if it was another group we were talking about right now. I mean, it, ultimately, let me just make this point and then go on to a spot. Ultimately, what Orthodox Jews are asking for in the United States, but it's very different from Israel, by the way, which is a whole different story, and the politics are interestingly, fascinatingly reversed. All they want is to be left alone. I mean, I had a long, uh, our old friend Saurabh Amari and I uh, had a session at our, 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 uh, our columnist, uh, Sully Soloveitchik's shul, uh, with uh, someone from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in which we were discussing religious liberty and stuff like that. And my line was, all basically what you want in America, if you are a pra- person of practicing faith, is to be left alone. That is what the Constitution promises you, is that you will be left alone. All Jews want is to be left alone. They want to be so don't start making rules about circumcision. Don't start saying that the way that we butcher our animals is is unjust. And don't tell us that we're not allowed to pra- to follow the prescriptions of our Sabbath. We are not getting in your way. We're a tiny minority, 2% of the population. Leave us alone. And here you have a case in which a, an, an official at a university in the, in the hot button issue area says, I know we're supposed to leave you alone, but you know what? I'm not going to leave you alone. Because I have the right not to leave you alone because my thing trumps your thing. Well, you know, if the COVID app, if you have the mindset that says that the COVID app must be filled out as opposed to obeying the dictates of your faith, then yeah, that's where you start getting countries in Europe banning ritual circumcision, which is the foundational practice of Judaism the foundational practice that precedes all other aspects of the oldest monotheistic faith on earth that have effectively efforts are being made to outlaw it in places. And well, the this only difference is how, <clears throat> yeah, the only difference I'd say, yeah. which is a difference you pointed to already in the case of circumcision. Um, some of the enemies of circumcision are trying to make a case about well-being. This is purely about bureaucratic appearances. Right. Very much so. Okay, let me talk to you about uh, our second sponsor, Raycon. Uh, look, I'm just going to come out straight. These are great headphones. They're wireless earbuds. They go in your ears. They're fantastic, and they're really good looking. Uh, whether you want to pump up, wind down, work out, go out, work, uh, they are should be your go-to for on-the-go audio. They're beautiful, kind of. They have this rubber oil look and feel, kind of black, and they're really, really pretty. Optimized gel tips. They send you like six of them, so you can figure out which one fits best in your ear. You can have three sound profiles, like one that's just sort of pure straight, like to listen to a podcast in, and one the bass mode where if you want to listen to hip hop or reggae or something, you want that bass boosted, you can do that through that through the earbuds. And there's also an all new awareness mode 
for when you need to listen to your surroundings. Instead, you can just shut off the music and then hear what's going on. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good, and they come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. So right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash commentary. That's buyraycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N, dot com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycon's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary. Um, so that was a fun rant, and now I'm exhausted. Uh, you guys, what I just should tell everybody that uh, in line with the ancient and archaic ludicrous traditions of of my of my uh, people that you know I, I I really do need to be using an app instead of doing this we will not have a show on Thursday uh, because of the commemoration of Yom Kippur so we'll have one tomorrow we'll have one Friday but not one on Thursday um, any other any other notes we need to mention uh, I think I mentioned this before because of the archaic, horrible traditions of our people, our magazine in October is probably going to get into your mailbox a little late, but we will have it online ready for you on Monday, which I think is the, is that the 20th? Yes. I think it's Monday the 20th. Um, so you can uh, peruse it if you are a subscriber at leisure. And I, I, I strongly recommend that you subscribe. It's also a good way to support the podcast and read the best magazine in America at commentary.org. We give you a few free reads. We ask you to subscribe. Go subscribe already. It's time for you to subscribe if you're not subscribing. And I will be starting to tell you next week about our roast, which comes up in November. And we are going to have a pretty fantastic one going for you and uh, here in New York in person. Uh, and I'll give you some details on that. So uh, for Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Pot Horitz. Keep the candle burning.